0: please take your bible out and go to acts chapter 9 as you're turning there i'll just point your direct uh, your attention to the screen again the reason why we've got a picture of an iceberg here is because what happens in the book of acts is just the tip of the iceberg uh we're we're spending a lot of time here don't get me wrong we're studying this in depth And yet what we see here is just the tip of the iceberg because it continues with you and me today. And so that's why we've got that image on our Acts picture. Um, Here in Acts chapter 9, we get introduced to, to a new character, sort of. Jason mentioned we've already come across Saul as a character in this book before. It's the same Saul as before. It's not somebody new. It's the same guy that... After, at the stoning of Stephen, held the coats of those who did the work of throwing the stones. So he may not have physically lifted a rock, but he approved of it. He aided in the killing of Stephen. I, I read this week that some people consider that apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, the most important event in human history is the conversion of Saul. Now, take that with a grain of salt being said by a man, and yet I think that there's some truth to that, because if you think about where the book of Acts and world history go from this moment on this road to Tarsus, or to Damascus, rather, everything changes. This is a huge event. Now, it might be a bit of an overstatement when you consider how in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given to people. That was a pretty important phase in human history too. And yet, it, it this is huge. So, think back to the last time that we heard about Saul. Actually, you can look back at Acts chapter 8, the very beginning. The first three verses, I actually want to read those. This is where we left Saul before Philip goes to preach to the Ethiopian. Verse 1 of chapter 8, And Saul approved of his execution. They're talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's that's Saul. That's what he was doing. That's what he was up to. That was his perspective on Christianity. He approved of Stephen's stoning, but he also led this new wave of persecution against Christians. Uh, you can see there he was... He was, he was busting down doors to people's private residences and dragging believing men and women off to prison. Just let that sink in for a second. We do, by God's grace and only his grace are, are we not seeing that in our country. And hope we won't. But it's happening in other parts of the world. This sort of persecution is happening. Let, so just let that sink in for a moment. But also recall with me that before Stephen was stoned, what did Saul hear? He heard his speech about the Savior, didn't he? I think this, this should be a reminder to us that when we trust the sufficiency of God's word and the message of the gospel, we, we ought to have faith that even though it may not look in the moment like anything changes, it's not for nothing. God's work is still happening. We talked about this last week from Isaiah's words in chapter 55 of of Isaiah, that God's word never returns void. It always accomplishes everything that God purposes for it. So we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. When you go out, when Christians go out and preach the word of God faithfully, we don't have to wonder or worry if it's working. (laughs) We know that it's working because God promises That it does, that it is. Uh, Surely Stephen believed that or he would not have done what he did. Because I don't think any of us would look at the story and say, well, when Stephen was preaching, he thought maybe he was going to get out of it. That they were going to let him go. I think when Stephen was preaching the truth, he knew exactly what was happening. I think he knew that was those were his last moments. But we've seen how the Spirit works through the Word in those who are are obedient to Him. We saw that pretty clearly, I hope, in the story of Philip, in the story of the Ethiopian, how the divinely synchronized events of both of their lives led them to that hot and dusty road in the middle of the desert. And as we read the first 18 verses of Acts chapter 9 this morning, I think we're going to see... Another obvious divine intervention. And so the first verses of Acts 9 pick up what we just read at the beginning of Acts 8, verse 3. Saul is still breathing murderous threats against the people of God. And I just want to point out before we read here, Saul is just not... He's, he's, it's not like he's just mildly irritated at what's going on with the message of Christ and the... the this salvation message he's not just like slightly annoyed at what christians are doing here he hated it he 100 percent opposed the teaching of jesus as the risen messiah he was saying by his actions and by his words he was saying this has to stop all throughout his writings later after his conversion he describes his former outlook And his former actions in Galatians chapter one, verse three, he said that he used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That was his mindset here. First Timothy one, three, he tells Timothy that he was a violent aggressor towards God's people. Later on in the book of Acts, uh, Paul, as his name would be changed to, he stands before King Agrippa, before King, and he recounts the story of his conversion that we're going to read in just a moment. And this is what he says about it. To, to the king, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That was Saul. Okay? And, and from his perspective, the followers of Christ were apostate Jews who threatened to corrupt Judaism. That was his perspective and his mindset. In his mind, he's doing the work of God. And yet, he made it his point, his mission, to wipe out Christianity. That was his goal. He was, see what he's told King Agrippa? He said he was trying to make Christians deny their faith, to blaspheme. We see that happen in countries. You, you look at Fox's Book of Martyrs. You read Voice of the Martyrs uh, magazine and, and newsletters, and you see that's happening today in other nations this was Paul. This was Saul, I should say. And I think it's, I point this out because I think it's important for us to understand the weight of what's happening here in, in, the, in the early church because you can just imagine the fear. You can imagine the hurt and you can imagine the prejudice among the Christians when this big event happens. And you'll notice as we read Ananias and, and his feelings in that way. So let's go to the text and let's read Acts chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 through 18 and then we'll, we'll pray. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was And as he has seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for saving Saul. As he would later describe himself to the churches, the greatest of all sinners, the chief of sinners. And yet, Lord, I think most of us who have a high view of the cross would probably give ourselves that title. But we thank you that the same Jesus who redeemed this man, as wicked as he was, is also the same that redeems still today, as wicked as we are. So we thank you that there is hope. If you could save a man like this, Lord, you can save us too. And so we thank you for this story, this true story, that it might teach us to trust you more. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So Luke's, Luke is the author here, and Luke's description of Saul's lifestyle is obvious. The very air he breathes here in the first couple verses is threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The Lord Jesus, this just off the bat, I think quickly, one thing we can learn from this is that you can be, you can be absolutely passionate and dedicated and enthusiastic and zealous for something and still be wrong. You understand what I mean? Consider groups throughout world history who were wholly dedicated to ungodly things. Passion, dedication, enthusiasm are only positive things if they're in support of the right things, aren't they? But Saul was passionate about all the wrong things. And verses 2 and 3 show how far this enthusiasm for the wrong things took him. He wanted everyone belonging to the way which is kind of a unique way of referring to Christians, but everyone who belonging to the way he wanted to bind and throw into prison and maybe even kill. Oftentimes those who would go into prison for this sort of thing would then be uh, put into arenas for the entertainment of the people or or the person in charge. And think about what he said too both in his story to King Agrippa later on, but also here what Ananias says is that he's got permission from the high priest. So even their own Jewish law gives Saul the right to do these things. Think about that. He was deputized to persecute Christians by the Jewish faith. The man who was once so zealous for all the wrong things, though would later instruct Titus in chapter 2, verse 14 of Titus to be zealous for good works. Passion for Christ is needed so long as that's what it is. Passion for Christ, not for ourselves or for tradition or for just maintaining some kind of comfort that we have in this life. Are we passionate for Jesus? Guys, we need the discernment and boldness of the spirit to know right from wrong and to do it, even if it goes against the grain of culture, because there's a lot of grain to be going against right now. And if we ever, or should I should say, if we never feel the need to resist the flow of the culture around us, we probably need to reevaluate who we're listening to and how we're living our lives. But right in the middle of this passionate pursuit of Saul for all the wrong things, what happens? God shows up. God intervenes. A light, he says, from heaven flashed around them, knocked him to the ground, and then Jesus speaks audibly to him. The glorified Christ speaks audibly to Saul, and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The rest of the traveling party, Saul Saul says, they they heard a voice, but they didn't understand what it was saying. They didn't see anyone speaking, and so they were likely very, very confused. But starting with verse 5, there's a few things I want to point out here from Jesus' words that reveal the Christ to us a little bit deeper. We know, number one... That these are Jesus' words when he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We know they're Jesus' words because he identifies himself in verse 5. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Okay, that, that one's pretty clear. The second thing I want to point out is that we know that the church is the body of Christ because Jesus says that Saul is persecuting him when referring to the church, to his people. He was persecuting his body. Saul was persecuting the church. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The church is the body of Christ. The church, in fact, is the visible representation of Christ in the world. To persecute the church, to persecute Christians, Jesus is saying here is to persecute him himself, Jesus himself. Every stone, think about this, every stone that landed... On the head of Stephen. Jesus felt. Believers. You and I though. Are in a new covenant with Jesus. And as such we are one with Christ. And are now identified with him. And that's what Jesus is saying. The church is his body. We are identified with Christ. Paul goes on later to say that he. Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren. And I I wonder. I wonder if this is why later, after Saul is converted and he is uh, studied in the scriptures and in his faith and he's writing to the churches, I do wonder if this is why one of his favorite metaphors for the church is the body of Christ. Because he was so impacted by this event in his life where Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Saul's mentor, remember his name, Gamaliel? He's mentioned back in Acts chapter 5. They're the council. They wanted to kill Peter and the apostles because they're continuing to preach the message of Jesus, even after being told to stop. And Gamaliel stands up, and and he kind of calms the group, and he he explains why. And then at the very end of his speech, he says something important in verse 39 of chapter 5. He says, don't do this thing because you might even be opposing God himself. Interesting for him to say, and interesting because he was right, wasn't he? Saul was opposing God himself by persecuting his people. The third thing I want to point out from this is that interestingly, the the word or the name Saul that Luke uses in verse 1 of chapter 4 is different from the name Saul that Jesus uses in verse 4 when he repeats it. Luke uses the Greek version of the name and Jesus uses the Hebrew version of the name. He also, as when, when Paul later describes this in two different places in the book of Acts. He recounts this wonderful story. And in both of those instances, he uses the Hebrew name for Saul, just like Jesus said here in chapter 9. Now, some people think that this is significant in a sense that, the, that Jesus uses the Hebrew form of the name Saul to kind of hint back to the first Saul that we learn about in Scripture from the Old Testament, about King Saul, who, as we know, was a great persecutor of David. Now, this Saul is a great persecutor of a son of David, Jesus, and his church. Now, I'm not so sure that the form of the name Saul is as important as the repetition of Jesus saying his name twice. Repetition, as you can imagine, when calling someone's name, is trying to get their attention, right? Uh Oftentimes, Moms and dads you are getting your kids up for school. you got to say their name a lot more than twice, sometimes even. You call it a lot because you want to get their attention. If someone is in danger, you call their name and you get louder until they respond to you, right? And so here Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's getting his attention and you better believe he got his attention. And just to make sure that the bright light and the audible voice from heaven made an impact. Look at verse eight and nine. What happened to Saul physically? He was blind. He couldn't see anything anymore. And not only that, but it says that he didn't eat or drink anything either. And we're not told exactly why that's the case, but it's typical for fasting to not eat or drink anything for an, an, extended period of time. And so I I kind of think that the Lord had gotten a hold of Saul and he was, he did not know what to do. <laughs> and so he just knew about fasting. And so he did that to seek God. But I, we got to understand in all of this, I don't think really, he may not have known exactly what was going on, but I don't think there was any doubt in Saul's mind of what he did experienced here today in on that day in at least six places. In Saul's other letters, he talks about having seen the Lord Jesus, and he, he calls him by that name, the Lord Jesus. He'd, been, he'd seen him or how he'd appeared to him on the road. Those references are in your notes. You can look them up. All of those places he specifically refers not to the bright light, but to Jesus appearing to him on the road. Now, I find it ironic. There's a couple of ironic things here, and you guys know I like to point those things out. I find it ironic how this experience of Saul's compared with the experience of Stephen when Stephen was being stoned in his last moments. Jesus appears here in Acts chapter 9 to someone who witnessed the stoning of Stephen, who heard Stephen's message and then heard Stephen describe his vision. If you remember, just before Stephen died, he's describing his vision of Jesus, standing exalted before the right hand of God. But at that point, Saul couldn't see what Stephen was talking about. Stephen testified to seeing the glory of God, of Jesus standing at his right hand, and Saul would have heard him plead with God to not hold this sin against them. Stephen's saying, God, don't hold this sin against Saul. Maybe not by name, but Saul heard it. And now instead of being struck down by stones like Stephen was, Saul is struck down by the glory of the Lord. And he too sees a vision of Jesus. And this is incredible. This is a direct answer to Stephen's prayer, isn't it? God is not holding Saul's sin against him. But he's calling for him. He's bringing him to himself. Saul, in fact, is forgiven here. And so as Stephen said, don't hold this against them. His prayer's being answered right here. Now, notice also that in the story of Saul, Christ got a hold of him before he got a hold of Christ. That's pretty instantaneous kind of a thing maybe. But Saul wasn't looking for Jesus this way. In fact, he would later, in Romans chapter 3, he would talk about this in great detail. He says, no one seeks after God. Nobody, everybody's mouths are open graves. Like, even everything about them is not seeking after God. But guess what? Jesus was seeking after Saul, wasn't he? I heard a pastor put it this way. He said, Paul was seeking to arrest followers of Jesus but was himself arrested to become a follower of Jesus. As Paul would later so eloquently phrase it in Romans 11, he'd say, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. It's true. There's no reason why God would call a man like this his traveling companions, they didn't know what was going on, right? Remember, they, they they heard a voice. They didn't know what was going on or who was talking. Um, but what did they do? Saul is stricken and blind, so what did the people with him have to do for, for Saul? They have to lead him, it says, by the hand into Damascus. Think about that. This once powerful and intimidating Saul has been reduced to being led by the hand like a child. He started his journey to Damascus physically seeing, but spiritually blind, but he ended it physically blind, but spiritually seeing it's funny, isn't it? This encounter with Jesus humbled Saul and changed his life forever. In fact, we could say it changed the world forever. Look at verses 10 through 16. These verses refer to now... (coughs) Excuse me. They speak of a different encounter. So the first one is a sinner being confronted by the exalted Savior, but in verses 10 through 16, we see a believer being confronted by a patient and sovereign Lord. So in a vision... Luke says, The Lord tells Ananias, a different Ananias than chapter five, to go to Judas's house, a different Judas than Chapter one, who was with Jesus and betrayed him. And he tells him to go to Judas's house on straight street, and there he's going to meet a man named Saul, who was of Tarsus. What was he supposed to do? Supposed to lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight and receive the Holy Spirit. As you can imagine Ananias has heard of Saul. He says that he says, Lord, I've heard of this guy. I've heard of his persecution of the saints. Okay. You don't have to be a, you don't have to be dead to be a saint. You just have to know Jesus. He says, I've heard how he persecutes them done, done much evil to them is how he says it in verse 13 and verse 14. He says, he's even got authority. He's been deputized to arrest people belonging to the way. It's almost like he's saying, God, don't you know who this guy is? Why him? New, there's a New Testament scholar named Simon Kistemaker who says this. I love the comparison that he makes. It's in your notes. He says, Saul, who desired to dash believers to the ground, is himself lying face down on the ground. He, who wished to bring prisoners bound from Damascus to Jerusalem, now is led as a prisoner of blindness into Damascus. He who acted with the authority of the high priest now breaks his ties with the Jerusalem hierarchy. He who came to triumph over the Christian faith now submits to the captain of this faith. Ananias hears the Lord speak to him, call his name, and he says, what I hope and pray I and all of you answer back to the Lord. He says, here I am. Isaiah said something similar in the Old Testament. Here I am, Lord. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go, do these things that I've told you to do. And he obeys, not without a short conversation first, but I think that his confidence was renewed in three ways by what Jesus says. Verse 15, Jesus reminded Ananias of his sovereign choosing here. He he told him, he said, Saul is my chosen instrument. Regardless of what he'd done, regardless of what Ananias even thought about him, Jesus says to Ananias, he is my chosen instrument. I have chosen him. God never uses good and put together people to do his work. Because that kind of person doesn't really exist, does it? (laughs) No one is good. No one seeks God, Saul himself later would say. So this is how God works. He grabs a hold of sinful and broken people. He redeems them for his glory, and then he uses them to do his work. And I think we can identify with that. Sinful and broken people. But by his grace... He makes us good and zealous for good works. And so I think Ananias took confidence in the fact that Saul was God's choice. Secondly, I think he took confidence in the fact that Jesus told him that he, he was choosing Saul for a particular purpose. And he tells him what that is at the end of verse 15. He, he basically tells him, he says, look, I'm going to save Paul not only from something, but I'm going to save him for something. And brothers and sisters, he does the same thing with you and me. He's not just saving you from something. He's saving you for something. For his purpose. Because you too are his chosen instrument of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth is what the call is in Acts one eight. Saul would be the one... Jesus tells Ananias to carry his name before gent- the Gentiles, before kings, and before his Jewish brethren, the children of Israel. This was not Saul's will. This was not Ananias' will. This was God's will for Saul. A plan that no one involved in this scenario of events would ever have chosen, Right? No one would have. Saul wouldn't have. Ananias wouldn't have. But God did. And I think Ananias took confidence from that, that this was God's purpose and plan. The third thing is in verse 16. Jesus assured Ananias that he would be going with Saul. Not Ananias, but that he would. Jesus would be going with him. He tells him that Saul would learn suffering for his name's sake. And I think in, I think verse 17 reveals that Ananias understands that Saul, he was going to be given the same spirit that he had. Cause he says, going to regain, going to regain his sight and be given the Holy Spirit. This is pretty incredible to me. Not only did Ananias have to come to grips with the fiercest persecutor of Christians in that day and age, being chosen by God, But that this man would take the message of salvation to to those outside the Jewish faith and religion. These are, these are hard things to come to grips with quickly, but it's all right there in Jesus' words to him. And verse 17 tells us that Ananias went and did it. He was obedient. But why would God choose Saul? You think that's what Ananias was asking? But God, why him? He's done so much evil to your saints. Surely there are better options than a violent persecutor of your people. Lord, are you sure? And yet God knew what he was doing, didn't he? Now think about the qualifications. I think this plays into, and Ananias didn't know all of these right up front because he didn't know Saul the way that we know Saul. These are in your notes too. Look at these qualifications, if you will, that prepared Saul for the work that God had chosen him to do. He knew the Jewish culture and the Jewish language well. This is this comes across in all of his writings to the churches. He was not a fool. He was well-versed in writing and reading in the Jewish culture and language. He was trained and skilled in Jewish theology as well. Guys, he knew the word. He didn't make all the connections that were necessary to be a part of the way that he calls it. But he knew scripture. Because he was raised in Tarsus, he was well acquainted with Greek culture and all of its philosophies. And you see that when he goes to uh, some of the other locations, Mars Hill and that sort of thing. Because he was capable in secular trade, he was also able to support himself. And so he was able to go on some of these missionary journeys. He also possessed all the privileges of a Roman citizen. That comes into play later when he's thrown in prison and begun to be tortured. That comes into big, big time play. But all of these things prepare Saul for the work that God was calling him to do. He didn't know it all in that moment, but God did and he was his chosen instrument indeed. So Jesus, in this conversation, tells Ananias everything he needs to know. Look at, the, look at these verses with me. He tells Ananias where exactly to go, to whom exactly he was to go to, when he was supposed to go, why he was going, and even what he was supposed to do when he found him. He laid it all out there for him. Just like God had been preparing Philip and the Ethiopian man for their encounter. God is preparing Ananias and Saul for their encounter. Saul was God's man for the job. He just wasn't quite sure of it yet. But look at verse 17. He was about to. And I think it's fitting here that the first thing that Saul experiences as a changed person is the love of the body of Christ. The love of the church. The very people he had spent probably years hunting down are the ones that give him love. He goes to a disciple's house in Ananias. What does he refer to him as? Brother Saul. Another interesting thing. The disciples that God uses here are names which were sort of tainted in biblical literature and history, weren't they? Judas and Saul. Saul, the king in the Old Testament who hunted David down time after time. Judas, who betrayed the Savior. And now, people with their namesake are some of the first to be a part of what God is doing out to the Gentiles. God uses these men in a redeeming way. I think that's interesting. And Saul is in Judas's house. And what what does God tell Ananias that he's doing? He's praying. He's praying. Why is that significant? Remember who Saul was. A persecutor of Christians, yes, but he was steeped, as we just said, in Jewish culture, language, theology. Do you think this is the first time Saul ever prayed? I don't. He's a Pharisee. He says, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had had built a habit of praying. He probably prayed more frequently than we do, if we're real honest. But I don't think he was ever praying with the right mindset before. This was different. And I think that's why it's pointed out. This was actual communication and communion with God. Before, it was just going through the motions, doing what he had to do to be a Pharisee. But now... His life has been changed, and he's actually communing with God in prayer. Verse 17, Ananias confirms a couple of things that are pretty big here. Number one, that Jesus is Lord. He uses those names interchangeably, and he also affirms that what Saul experienced was of the Lord. It was Jesus who you saw, Saul he lays his hands on him and what happens he regains his sight and he is filled with the Holy Spirit and just like the Ethiopian man in the story before the first thing he does is he gets up and he goes and is baptized and just think about it there's no fanfare here one of the maybe most important conversions in all of history and there's what maybe three guys in the room Judas Ananias and Saul There's no fanfare. There's no big thing made of this. But this was one of the biggest momentous shifts in all of history. Saul had been filled with the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's how he describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. He'd been filled with that kind of spirit, but now he was filled with the different spirit, wasn't he? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. God's spirit. And immediately when this happened, something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see. I don't know if there's something physical that came off of his face in this moment. We're not sure. But he could now see physically. Again, it's interesting to me that he could see spiritually before he could see physically. And he was baptized. And this is significant for Saul as well. Saul's baptism let everyone know where he stood regarding Jesus Christ. Saul is effectively saying, I'm not going back. By being baptized, Saul cut the cords of approval with Jewish leaders who he'd been steeped in their presence up until this point. His baptism severed ties of friendship. And in general, it was just him burning all the bridges of his prior life. He wasn't going back to that life ever again. And his baptism helped people understand that. How could he go back? He had met Jesus. He'd been filled with his spirit. There are two important questions that Saul asked that I want to point out from the text as we close this morning. These are back in verses 5 and 6. The first question that's an important question, Is this, Saul says, who are you, Lord? Who are you? Well, he got an answer pretty directly. It said, I am Jesus was the voice that responded. And Paul or Saul instantly knew that the one he'd been persecuting is actually really the savior, the redeemer. He had been devout, dedicated. He'd been enthusiastic. But he'd been kicking against the goads as uh, he recounts in this story later in Acts 26. He'd been fighting against the one who was calling to him. And I just wonder, in asking that significant question this morning, could it be that there are some here or listening that are doing the same thing? They're kicking against the goads, as, as he puts it. They're fighting against the one who is calling them. Maybe you even think like Saul that what you're doing is right or good or acceptable. But when you compare it to the scripture, you realize maybe you've missed the mark. Maybe it's not true of you. Maybe you're missing the mark. In fact, because you really don't know who Jesus is. Who is he? From here's some, some things from Saul's own lips as he would come to understand. He says that Jesus is the Savior. He says, Jesus, this Lord, is the cornerstone. He says he's the Redeemer, the sacrificial Lamb. He calls him the creator, the author and perfecter of faith. He calls him the head of the church, and he says very clearly here that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus has come to seek And to save the lost. Boy, we see that here in Saul's story, don't we? Know that he is seeking you too. He's calling. Second question. First one is Who are you, Lord? The second question is important for us to ask too, and it's this Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, I realize that's a simple question. There's nothing profound in either of these questions. But what's the pri- the primary answer to this? Lord, what do you want me to do Is is simple as well. Turn to him and believe in him. This was Jesus' call to all of those whom he spoke to. Trust him, believe him, turn to him. You might have all of the use of your physical sight, but without Christ, your spiritual eyes are blind. And you need to be given sight. And that's the joy and the power of the gospel is that Jesus has come to give you sight, to open your eyes, and to give you life. When Saul asked this question, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I want us to understand. I want us to realize that he was giving up his right to himself when he asked it. It wasn't just this like, Lord, what do you want me to do so that I can get my sight back and go back to business? He knew, Lord, what do you want me to do? He was giving himself over to Jesus Christ, to the one whom he was persecuting. He was giving his life over to the Savior. It's good that you trust Jesus, a Savior. It's necessary that you settle the issue of who he really is. But have you asked the second and crucial question, Lord, what do you want me to do now? Like Saul We don't bargain. We don't negotiate. We don't meet Jesus halfway. The response of those who've been transformed by the Savior is submission to the Savior. And that's what Saul is saying when he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Submitting himself, his rights, his life to Jesus. When God truly reveals Christ to us, as our only response is the same thing. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? May your will be done. And may you use me to do it. Not all conversions are as dramatic as Saul's here. Many of your calls to Christ don't involve being knocked down by a bright light and a voice from heaven. I'd venture to say probably none of yours involve those sorts of things. They're not all dramatic like this. But, brothers and sisters, every salvation is a miracle. Never be ashamed of what God has done in your life. Because he's called you from the pit of sin and death. And he's brought you into the light. And that's a miracle. Because you know who you are. Saul knew who he was. Ephesians 2, he makes it pretty clear, dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 5, enemies of God. And yet, he calls us and he saves us by his grace. So every Christian who has a testimony of salvation has been commissioned by Jesus to do these things. To live in obedience to him. To love one another in his name. To know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding, to be filled with all the fullness of God and to be his witnesses to all the earth by his power through his spirit. So those questions that Saul asked are significant to us to ask today still. Who are you, Lord? And if that's settled in our minds, we know, praise God for that, That's by his grace. But then we ask that other question that's equally significant. What do you want me to do with that, Lord? I submit myself wholeheartedly to you. Lord, I know who you are, and I'm ready to do what you want. Reminds me of that song that we sing sometimes. The lyrics say, take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to Mm -hmm. thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. May that be our prayer this morning. Let's pray. Take our lives, Lord. Let them be consecrated, given over wholly to your will. Lord, you have called us like you have called Saul out of darkness and into your glorious light you've called us not only from something, you've called us to something. To your church, to your people. Lord, may we never think that we can do this Christianity thing on our own. Because you've not called us to do that. You've called us to a body, to a people. And so Lord, may we be dedicated to your call in our life. May we then ask that other question, Lord, what do you want us to do? And Lord, I, I'm confident by your word and by your spirit that you'll answer us. In those ways, Lord, you will answer us and give us definitive work to do. May, may we be listening. May we have ears to hear what you have to call us to, Lord. May we submit ourselves to your rule in our life more and more each day as a result of your spirit in us. Thank you for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.